Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yes, and also don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Please do that. And before we get to the meat of our episode, which is our Beatles book club, our third Beatles book club, we just want to make one quick announcement, a reminder to come see us next weekend. That's Friday and Saturday, September 20th and 21st for Beatles at the Ridge, the fabulous small Beatles festival in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. So excited. I can't believe it's next weekend. I know. I know. We've been talking about this forever. I can't wait. It's so crazy. Yeah. So it's... As Erica said, it's going to happen Friday to Saturday, September 20th and 21st, 2019. If you're listening to this in the future, hi, I hope everything is okay. Um, But there's a lot of musicians, artists, poets, authors, and lots of Beatles fans to hang out with. And we'll be doing a live podcast on Saturday at 430, uh, right before the keynote. We're very excited We'll be discussing Beatles memorabilia from a next-gen perspective. Yes, and we'll have a fun special guest doing that with us. So hopefully we'll be able to put that on this feed if we get a recording of it. But if not, maybe if you're in the area, come on down to Beatles at the Ridge and uh, and see us live. We'll be talking yeah. to as many of the guests and attendees as possible. And we'll definitely report back with a recap and a bunch of fun new interviews. There are a lot of really interesting Beatles authors there. So we're going to hope to get get some, some good stuff from them. Also, Allison and I will be together in person for the first time in like months. So I know. When was the last, was it November for the White Album? Symposium? I think it was in February when we did a very non-Beatles oh, trip to right. Harry Potter Universal. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That like yeah. few seconds you were out here in LA. Right, right, right. Anyways, but if you want to meet us in person and share this beautiful moment, the festival is the low, low price of nothing dollars. It's free. With free parking, too, for those of you driving in. Oh, that's so amazing. That's a phrase you never hear here in L.A. But yeah, if you want to find out more, go to BeatlesAtTheRidge.com. And yeah, we hope to see you there. Anyway, like we said, this is our Beatles book club. And uh, it started out as like an every month thing, but it's become a um, every so often thing. <laughs> Every so often, often, where we read a different book about the Beatles and invite you guys to listen along with us, and uh, then we discuss it. This time, uh, we're going to be continuing on our Brian Epstein kick and reading a cellar full of boys. Sorry, a cellar full of noise. (laughs) That was, uh, yeah, that was what um, uh, John Lennon liked to call it a cellar full of boys, (laughs) which is very John. Yes. First of all, this Brian Epstein kick we're on, it has got me just all sorts of happy. If you missed it, we posted a special mini-sode about how to pronounce Brian's last name, which is obviously Brian Epstein. Um, And if that's not obvious to you, go listen to the episode. And then we posted it again. We posted a second version of it where we found even more definitive evidence about the correct pronunciation of his name. So definitely check that out and at us if you want to talk about it, because we love to talk about this. So let's go into a little bit of background before we start talking about what's in A Cellar Full of Noise. Strangely, this is Brian's autobiography, but it was published in 1964, which is so interesting. Brian wasn't even 30 at that point. And a lot of people consider this to be heavily ghostwritten by Derek Taylor, who was Brian's personal assistant then, but he later became a very well-known publicist for the Beatles, the Beach Boys, a lot of 60s artists. And uh, the rumor was that Derek sort of wrote this whole thing. Brian sort of looked it over and gave it the check mark, and that was it. But actually, that's not the case. What happened was Brian actually taped all of this speaking to Derek Taylor, and then Derek Taylor transcribed the book, wrote it up, which Brian then edited, proofread, and approved. The transcription is in Derek's book called 50 Years Adrift, which I think is out of print now. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's like, I I think you can buy copies for it every once in a while for like two grand. So. Anybody's got that um, and wants to like scan those pages and send them to us, yeah, that'd be good. Also, if anybody can find those goddamn tapes, because that would just be amazing. Oh my god! Like, where are those tapes? They've got to still exist somewhere, right? Mark, are you listening? Mark, (laughs) 
Mark Lewison. That would be good for volume two. This is right in the volume two wheelhouse, I think. So right. You found him. Lewison, give me the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, this is all really good news because a cellar full of noise is essentially told in Brian's voice. It's not in Derek Taylor's voice. And that makes sense to me because Derek Taylor wrote a bunch of copy for the Beatles. Like he wrote the Beatles first couple of Christmas records. And mm, right. you can definitely tell that those are not the Beatles voices. Um, yeah. And they're making fun of it all the way. <laughs> yeah. And plus, Derek Taylor was very involved in the 60s teen magazine world, which if you come to the Ridge, I'm going to bring some of those uh, that we can all look at and have fun yes. with. But but Derek Taylor ghost wrote a lot of um, um, this is how you date uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. What I look for in my ideal girl like that was all Derek Taylor sort of pandering to the fans. That's hilarious. For real. I'm glad that that was cleared up because this one really sounds to me like what I believe Brian sounds like from the interviews we have with Brian. So mm. it makes me happy to know that this is probably much closer to an autobiography, if not a straight up autobiography, just written from tapes than a ghost written book. I agree. I agree. And I've got to say, I read, obviously read A Cellar Full of Noise before, but I haven't read it in probably 10 years. And I really enjoyed this reading of it, like having you know, known that and obviously developed my love of Brian for a decade more or whatever. But yeah, it's like knowing Brian and having freshly listened to a lot of those interviews for our last episode. It was like I could clearly hear his voice saying all these words and it was just delightful. And you know, what's really interesting to me reading this book was that at first I was like, okay, I've heard all these stories before. Okay. You know, and I was kind of skimming, but then I went back and I was thinking, actually, this is the first time that anybody probably heard any of these stories. And the book feels so much more groundbreaking to me if you think about the restricted capsule that media was in that in those days and what a firsthand account of the Beatles experience would have what kind of gift that would have been at that time. And it reminded me too of our first book club book which was Love Me Do The Beatles Progress, you know, which was really the very first book about the Beatles. It painted them in such an honest light. And Brian actually does a pretty good job of that too. He's going to be a little bit more gracious to his boys, but, uh, but he does get kind of honest, which is very, very cool of him to let his guard down enough to do that. So the book uses the Beatles' first U.S. visit as a framing device to start off, which is probably a smart move because people open the book, they want to get right into the Beatles, less so than the autobiography of the person telling the story. So we start with the onset of Beatlemania. It was at a great time. I mean, he was at the top of this mountain looking down on this crazy, only three years that he had really had with the Beatles so far. And who knows? I mean, I bet a lot of them, a lot of people reading this were sort of like, oh, yep, this is the end of the road, you know, get big in America and go home. In fact, this is just the beginning, as we all know now. I think it's interesting the way Brian sort of talks about the Beatles. He talks about his artists. He call he explains why he calls them artists. Um, but he always says my Beatles or us or we. He sort of defines them all as one solid unit. He's included every time. And I love when he talks about the Beatles being mobbed for autographs and pictures and stuff. He always includes himself. Like, you know, we were being hounded for autographs and everyone wanted pictures of with us. And I was like, yeah, I mean, did I time travel? Because I would be the one after Brian. <laughs> Yes, you would. And in that way, he coined himself the fifth Beatle, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he quite literally, uh, on the cover of this book, I'm looking at um, one, two, three, four, five, there's five Beatles on the cover. Uh, middle is Brian, anyway. Well, Brian is your favorite Beatle, so. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's funny, because at the time, there was, you know, the Brian Epstein fan club, you know, there were people who were into him. I saw a photo on Instagram the other day, I think, of a fan photo with a girl and Brian, which I thought was really sweet. But I think a lot of people probably didn't know a whole lot about who he was behind the Beatles until his book came out. He's very honest about his early life, which was not amazing for him. He talks about how he was pretty much a failure until the Beatles came along, uh, certainly until he started working at his father's store. He tried a thousand different things, failed out of all of them, failed out of a bunch of different schools, left them tried a bunch of different professions, dropped out, like he just really could not land. He calls himself in the book, quote unquote, one of the latest developers of all time. And he compares himself to Keats, which I thought was really interesting. And he says, if Keats had waited as long as I did to get going, he wouldn't have written more than a couple of poems before his death. 
which is kind of dark when you think that like Keats died at 25 and then Brian would die three years after this book was published at 32. It gives another kind of perspective on the way we look at age now versus then, where, you know, he's talking about himself as this old has been the oldest person to ever develop at like 22, 23, like when he was in drama school and everything. I mean, nowadays, if you're 22 or 23, and you haven't figured out what you want to do with your life like join the club yeah you're a baby any 22 23 year olds you are a baby do not worry yeah (laughs) we're older than you and we still don't know what we're doing hell no or most of the time yeah so brian he's almost brutal to himself which i think was a trait of his but he he says in school and in life he was not popular and not good at forming friendships so he adds that he's quote unquote probably better now because he's probably a nicer person So, I mean, now as in 64, obviously, when the book was published. Which is really sad in a way, because he's kind of saying bullying made me better and being an outcast made me better. He's got this sense of vulnerability that you certainly don't see in most popular media, especially at that time. And, you know, he really reflects on himself and on his relationships. At one point in the book, he said, I wield a certain amount of what, for want of a better word, is described as power. This in turn brings other problems because it is no longer easy to know whether I am wanted for what I am or for what I am supposed to have in terms of material goods or power. In other words, do people want me or do they want the Beatles? That's sad. Yeah, which, I mean, was really omnipresent. His, I mean, from... 63 through the end of his life like so many of his relationships like his romantic relationships were built on that and thinking of Diz Gillespie which I don't think we really talked about Ryan's uh relationship with that idiot um very much but you know he, he was involved with a lot of users a lot of people who really did just want that cachet and I think that created a lot of insecurity and I could see how that would fuel some of his self-abuse with drugs and some of his uh shall we say deviations Plus being an outcast and feeling like he never had a place in his life and being Jewish in a society where anti-Semitism was all over the place. And he's still hiding a massive secret, you know? I mean, he doesn't talk at all in the book about being gay. Um, In fact, we'll get into it in a little bit, but he says the opposite pretty much. And it's scary, I think, you know, when you're not allowed to expose so much of yourself and who you are intrinsically, it, it becomes this whole thing where it doesn't create a stable foundation where you're like, oh, I know they like me because I'm a good person and I'm honest and blah, blah. And he was all of those things, but he was also not 100% true to himself. Which he couldn't be. I mean, at the time, um, homosexuality, at least homosexual acts were a felony. You could go to jail for that. So he had to hide it. But it's funny because he hides it and he doesn't because he frequently uses words like unmanly to describe the way Mm. his parents thought of him. So He's not trying to be macho or anything, and he's not being, he's not trying to, you know, have a, have to obscure that, that part of himself. He's just denying the part of himself that would get him in jail. Exactly. It's sort of coded language, you yeah. know? And I think, too, that's a really cool indicator of Brian's voice in the book, because Derek Taylor was kind of a ladies' man. You know, he was sort of one of those macho, like, industry types who, like, slept around and, like, partied a lot. And so by using the tone, and the whole book is sort of theatrical and and full of, like, certain bravado that's not over the top, but you can definitely feel the swell of pride from Mm -hmm. Brian. It's like that testifies to to the tone of the book, which which is great. He obviously talks about his family um, in the context of them sort of thinking he was unmanly, but... He talks about Queenie, who he loved so much, his mother, Queenie Epstein. He says, still the loveliest woman I know, was intensely proud that her firstborn was a boy. And when, 21 months later, my brother Clive arrived, the Epsteins looked like being a happy and promising little family unit. Today, 30 years later, this is so again, but there were many interviewing, inter- interviewing, well, intervening spans of misunderstanding, failure, and unhappiness before we found real contentment as a family. Very sad, you know, when you think that Harry Epstein, Brian's father, would be dead three years later, and then Brian would follow suit like weeks after his father. And whether the happiness that he is saying that he has now is totally true or not, you know, we'll never know. Obviously, everybody has, you know, everybody is not just one dimensional in that way, but Brian obviously had a lot of inner demons that in this book he is trying very hard to deny. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, when you consider like the family dynamic, you know, with them not only being a family unit, but also being a business entity, you know, with Brian and Clive working at Harry's store and Brian sort of branching out and leaving his father and then Clive, you know, getting involved with NEMS later. And it's, it's a whole big thing. Families are fucking complicated. Mm -hmm. Not only did they have all of these issues with the business itself, but that Brian couldn't figure out who he was and what he wanted to do. And I think it probably wore on his parents who expected him to follow a straight path that he tried four or five different things and for one reason or another didn't succeed at them until he oh gosh, happened right? upon management and, well, really running the NEM store, but then managing the Beatles. I guess if he's 22 and that is old to be discovering yourself in 1960 Liverpool and you're saying, I want to be, I want to go to an acting school. Well, your parents are probably not thrilled about having to foot that bill. Yeah, they probably didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, and it was hard for him too, I'm sure, because every time he thought that he knew what he wanted to do, of course he had voices of doubt right there saying, well, we'll see if this one sticks. One thing he does say in the book is he's very, um, sort of pats himself on the back for saying he has an instinct for sound, which I think is pretty interesting because he was never one to really hang around the studio with the Beatles, but he does say he sort of, he knows a hit when he hears it. Well, he loved classical music and he had this really strong instinct for theatricality. I think those two things together... I think he even says it in the end that good music is good music and I know what it is. It didn't even matter whether or not the good music was his preference of music. But that's interesting that he, for a guy who sort of has kind of a lack of instinct about what would work for him, you know, he's like, I know this about myself. I'm sure that his confidence was bolstered because by that time, you know, he had the Beatles and all that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has this, the success of having the top hit makers of all time. Exactly. But before he discovered the Beatles, he did approach a few different professions. One of them was uh, he was forced to go into the National Service because he was one of the last generations that had to do that before it was abolished in the UK. And even though he seems to be somebody who deals with a lot of social anxiety and fumbles around and is insecure about himself, he also kind of gives zero fucks. Because he tells this story about totally. how he got in huge trouble because he impersonated an officer and got caught doing it. I love this story. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is that sweet baby and his element. This is ridiculous. I guess I just read this because it's, yeah, it's read absurd. It. It's absurd. Read it. He says, my failure to be selected as an officer did not, however, prevent me from impersonating officers. And one night this involved me in trouble. I had deviously secured a posting to Regent's Park Barracks, and I used to enjoy off-duty life in the West End, for I had a lot of relatives in London. Sure, Brian. Yeah, true story of that. On, <laughs> <laughs> on this particular night, I had myself brought back to camp in a large car. It slid gently to a halt outside the barracks gate. I marched into camp wearing, rather pompously, I'm afraid, a bowler, pinstripe suit, and over my arm, an umbrella. Well, after that, he got in trouble and he got ejected from the army for more than just being unsuitable, for just kind of being a prankster. Yeah, which is so funny. It's so unlike the Brian that, like, you know, was very regimented when it came to the Beatles. It's so, I love that. I love that story that he was like, yep, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get away with it. And then he didn't. <laughs> but even though he didn't, he's, he's fucking proud of himself. Yeah, yeah, because see, it's like that confidence. Like, that takes a lot of balls to do that. Those stories kind of bridge the gap between this person who seemed, you know, perpetually insecure and out of place and this person who brought the Beatles to international startup. He's got this innate sense of self-worth and self-confidence and fun, which you may not yeah. see, that really helped him probably not only gel with the Beatles, but have the confidence to approach all of these record companies and to be a pioneer in this field. It's like these little flashes of the impish Brian. Like I'm thinking about the photograph with the Beatles. I think it was taken in Paris with, when they're all around a, a dinner table with George and Judy Martin and Brian's got like a chamber pot on his head. And it's like, that's so not the Brian you think of, but he could be a goofball. Which is I'm sure part of the reason the Beatles gelled with him. Yeah, he couldn't have been like totally L7. Yeah, John would have hated him but he and John were very close. Exactly. But uh, Brian does say that I love this quote, that he's not, quote unquote, not the vainest man in the world. That's a well-known DJ. 
<laughs> and that's kind of like the pattern of this whole damn book because Brian is like, he's super bitchy about other people, but he never names names. Like, it's sort of like, who are you talking about? Like, I suspect that well-known DJ might be Murray the K. I don't know. He and Murray had a good relationship, but Murray also seems like very vain. Yeah, that's very possible. Yeah, but I was like, oh, dude, like, name names. He's like, he goes on at length about certain people, talks a whole bunch of shit, and then he's like, anyway, and sort of moves on. And he also hates actors. Oh, my God, he hates actors. It's so funny. Holy shit, yeah, which is so funny because he, you know, forced the Beatles to do, well, he didn't force them. You can't force the Beatles to do anything, but, um, you know, he, he got the movie deals and, like, was pushing them into more movies. But yeah, he fucking hates actors. Which makes me wonder, because he he says in the book that the reason he couldn't deal with being an actor and being in drama school was that he hated actors so much and he couldn't stand their personalities. And having been an actor who didn't quite, not quite on Broadway right now, I've heard that before. That people who don't quite get successful, they say, well, I just hated the people and I couldn't deal with the people. People say that. But... We don't have actual evidence of him performing. We don't know what he was actually like. And I do wonder, given his theatricality and his what he was able to do to, you know, make the Beatles so successful, maybe he was better than we think he is. You know, what we think of him as an actor is really just brought on by stories that he failed at so many things. But I do wonder if this is honest from his perspective and that he really couldn't stand the people. That's very funny. I never thought of it like that, where it's like, Okay, Brian, is that true? Or just, just not, like, were you not a great actor? I don't know. I'm just saying. God, I wish somebody had, like, a tape. Hey, hey, people who live around Rada and had uh, old family members that went to Rada, uh, can you just snoop around in, like, your grandparents' drawers and shit and see if you have any, like, 16 millimeter tapes of Brian acting? I'm just saying. There might oh be God. something. Lovely. But it's funny because he also says, like, he hates actors, but he also says, like, in 19, as of 1959, he, quote, unquote, was shy of stars and anxious not to be a bore in their dressing rooms. And that was, like, all of his friends who were actors, he'd still go see their, their plays and things, but he just didn't, he didn't love hanging around the dressing rooms because he was worried he'd be boring. If you're an introvert in a world of extroverts, it is kind of intimidating to be in those spaces sometimes. I can see mm. where you'd say that. I bet. I bet. And he was in those spaces constantly. It must have been... A lot of dealing with that, that social anxiety feeling. Definitely. Whereas music, it's like people are just, it's a different kind of weirdo mm -hmm. in that music world. And then he, and we, you know, alluded to it before, but he, he also mentions a girlfriend. He said he, I forget what the context was, but he says, you know, I was going somewhere with a girlfriend and then she broke up with me because, um, you know, because of the Beatles, I'd rather go see them whatever. Um, and then later he says, you know, the boys may marry one day as may I, which, you know, has been kind of, per you know, paraded around as a, a notable quote from this. Um, but, you know, so it's like, that's him sort of, again, like hiding his love away. Uh, oh God. <laughs> uh, God, I hate myself. Um, but hiding, <laughs> hiding his true sexuality. I mean, that wasn't uncommon either. For fuck's sake, Elton John got married in the eighties. Right. Yeah, so. exactly. So many people, Rock Hudson, mm -hmm. you know, like Hollywood music. I, and it sucks because I still hear and we all still hear that there are so many, you know, closeted uh, male actors today. And mm -hmm. like, you know, for lack of a better example, Kevin Spacey, who came out in such a disastrous fucking oh, way. Like, my God. F, F him. But, oh. you know, it's like, you know, it still goes on, you know, where they can't come out or they feel like they can't come out. Mm hmm. Yeah, and the concept of being gay as an identity wasn't quite as fleshed out as it is now anyway. So even if you didn't feel anything for women, you might still feel like you might get married someday anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, surprisingly, I, I could see, well, Queenie, Queenie was aware. Queenie sort of always knew. Um, but I could see if she maybe wasn't aware, she would definitely be pushing him into to finding a wife. And if not, but I think, if not her, then his father, most likely. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean... Although Brian couldn't settle on a job, I mean, could he ever settle on a woman? Probably not. No. <laughs> Hypothetically. The book then goes on to talking about his perspective on the Beatles from the managerial sides of things. So he talks about things that are probably never been talked of before in a public space before this book. So how they formed companies, Brian's concerns about things like promotional products or how to keep interest 
uh, in them in America after they returned to England, things like that. So it was an interesting perspective on the Beatles because it wasn't necessarily about their success, but that kind of taking a step back from their success and how do I manage their success? Right. You know, it's funny because we've been talking at length about his sort of flightiness and settling in a career, but Rex Macon, who was the Epstein's neighbor and also had a law office next to uh, NEMS in Whitechapel in Liverpool, was a friend of Brian's. And uh, Brian went to Rex and was sort of like, uh, told him about the Beatles and was really excited. And then Rex was sort of like, oh, okay, Brian, like, yeah, sure. You're going to do this for another, for like two weeks and then quit this too, right? And Brian was so offended because he very strongly felt like his, his involvement with the Beatles would be forever, which is so crazy when you consider like his, his track record. I, oh, I yeah. think Rex was totally within his boundaries to be like, okay, dude. Absolutely. Sure. The fact that the Beatles stuck with Brian is amazing. It's just one of those other amazing things about the Beatles story that it gelled. This totally unexpected long shot thing was the one that gelled. I know. And to be fair, he sort of did kind of like, not he didn't try to quit the Beatles, but he sort of like went down that path a couple times. Like when he came back from um, shopping them around in London and keep kept getting doors shut in his face. He talks about how he met the boys at Lime Street Station and was like really sad. And they all went and had like, you know, a, a coffee or something and sat around. And he was sort of like, I don't know, boys, like maybe this isn't whatever. But they were the ones that were like, no, Brian, this is going to work, you know, and he says they, quote unquote, gave him the strength and energy to keep going, which is really amazing because they had that symbiotic relationship where they weren't, weren't going to let him just fucking abandon them. Maybe in some ways, and maybe I'm just projecting here, but the whole reason that he did any of these things was to find his community and find his tribe. And if he felt out of place in the army and he felt out of place in acting and he felt out of place in school and he quit all of those things because there was nobody in his mind who would have cared whether he continued or not. Well, then he left it. But because he had these people who really, really cared that he didn't quit, he didn't. I think that's totally true. I think it was very much like, I don't know how much you guys believe in, you know, destiny or whatever, but I think this was sort of meant to be. And also, he probably didn't get the same acceptance. Like, I'm sure nobody in the army was like, oh, no, Brian, don't go, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or like his fellow actors, you know. But here it's like, oh, no, no, Brian, you're not going anywhere. Like, you're going to sit your ass here and, and find us a record deal. It mattered to them. So he felt accountable, probably for one of the first times in his life. I agree. It's funny. We talked a little bit about it at the top of the episode, but he talks a lot about the sort of cliche Beatles legends that we here and some of them to be honest are kind of like oh that's fake that's gonna that didn't really happen but they all sort of stem from this book and they did happen which is surprising like you know one of the things is you know uh, when they show when the Beatles show up in Brian's office to sign their contract you know Paul's not there and and Brian's like where's Paul and you know George is like oh he's in the bath and you know yeah he'll be late but very clean or whatever yeah. and, and that's like and I've always thought like okay yeah right that's just too like corny to actually have happened but no it comes from a cellar full of noise brian tells that story and i believe brian so i guess it happened yeah or like when george harrison said to george martin after their first audition and george martin said is there anything you don't like about what we did today and george harrison said well i don't like your tie and that's like yeah that's famous beatles lore that most people feel is apocryphal because it's ridiculous but it comes from this primary source of brian who's in the room yeah, exactly. And he also talks about Raymond Jones, who we talk a lot about, I think, in our episode. Do we talk? We do. Is that the episode we talk about, mm -hmm. Raymond Jones? Raymond Jones, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the name of the person who may or may not exist who went into NEMS and wanted a copy of the Beatles, uh, well, Tony Sheridan, My Bonnie, which made Brian be like, who are the Beatles? You know, the rest is history. And so Brian supports this Raymond Jones myth, it might be, and there's so much to go into there, it's it's unreal. So go back and listen to our other uh, episodes. But he does also talk about the first time he saw the word Beatle, which was on a poster advertising university dance at New Brighton Tower. And he said, he, he said he'd seen the Beatles hanging around NEMS, which I think is so funny to have that image in your head of like Brian, like organizing shit behind the desk and those idiots like clowning around in their leather jackets and stuff. And they don't even know each other. 
And yet it's going to be this massive thing and, and nobody knows. Yeah, that's like one of those stories you'd put in the beginning of a movie because you know also that the Beatles, they never bought anything. They would just listen over no. and over in the listening booths until they got the chords down, but they wouldn't buy stuff. So they were probably really annoying to yeah. a manager like Brian. And he also talks about the rumor that he bought all the copies of the first single, Love Me Do, to get it onto the charts, which is not true. And he was not pleased with those rumors. Oh, no, no. He was very upset. And it definitely attacked his integrity. And that was the most important thing for him. So he was pretty pissed. Which is nice to see. I mean, it's nice to see that he comes out with real emotions about this stuff. You know, mm. he's not denying it for the sake of denying it. He actually feels the insult to his core. And he tells us. Yeah, he, he kind of lets loose. You know, he talks about when the Beatles first signed the contract. As we all know, he didn't sign it because he felt if they were unhappy with him as manager, they could leave at any time. Again, such integrity, you know. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, about the Beatles and all of his artists, uh, quote unquote, there is no room in our relationships for contract slavery, which is amazing. Uh, in an era where you have like Colonel Tom Parker, who is like leading Elvis around on like a leash, you know. Yeah, and, and you know the A and R men—they they gave artists like one part of one cent for every record sold. I mean, they've really got the short end of the stick. He did not want that kind of relationship with them. Yeah, exactly. One thing he didn't give a lot of time to was Pete Best. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, let's just gloss over this real quick. He did do the firing. This is where that story comes from. He says it did make him sick to do it, but it was at the Beatles' request, so he had to do it. And it made him a very, very unpopular man in Liverpool. Obviously, the uh, the girls who are all Pete Forever, Ringo Never, did not like Brian very much. But, you know, it worked out for the best. And uh, as he spent very little time on it, I guess so will we. All right, let's move on. <laughs> um, he talked about the Beatles. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. He talked a lot about the Beatles' live experiences offstage, a.k.a. getting to and from the shows. And he went into crazy amounts of detail about precisely how they get in the cars, they sneak out the back of places, or they have all these sort of, like, options that they go through he gave the name of the beatles driver yes um right who is still working for them i'm like okay well this is pretty much a blueprint for beatles fans so just do these things after a beatles show and you'll you'll run into them maybe not the smartest it was certainly an interesting read yeah but i would have waited until after beatlemania died down just a little i mean maybe that was where his head was at that he really thought that that was gonna end that there wasn't gonna be that anymore um you know and he didn't ever think that the craziness of 1964 would lead to the anger and violence of 1965 and 1966 that led them to stop touring. Yeah, I mean, Brian was very proud that there had been no violence under his watch, even though he talks about how the police undervalue the magnetism of McCartney mm -hmm. or underestimate the determination of girls to tear at his clothes. And that's funny that he singles out Paul right there. That it does beg the question, I mean, what would these girls do? You know, possessed with this passion that Brian literally called murderous, what would they do if they succeeded? And was Brian worried about this? And if Brian was worried about this, why is he talking about it? I mean, that's a very good question. It's sort of like, you know, a dog chasing a car. It's like the dog wouldn't know what to do if he caught the car. Who knows? Like a thousand screaming teenage girls, they could be very, that could be detrimental as we would see later in the decade. And it already started. I mean, he mentions the jelly babies and the, you know, the pointy things that got thrown on stage. Something almost got Paul in the eye. Yeah. He says, you know, he's proud of no actual bodily harm or violence, but they were still at the point where there were some close calls. Actually, you know, thinking back, it's surprising the more crazy shit didn't go down. Like they really did get lucky. I don't know what the, you know, reading statistics were on this book. Maybe actual teenagers felt that this book was a little adult and didn't read it. Mm, I don't know. But if, if I was an MSS teenager and I got this, I'd be doing the work. Oh, yeah. I would be like, oh, okay. Brian Epstein is talking directly to me and giving me coded uh, ways to meet his boys. <laughs> that would be, yeah. Or some crazy teenager might think of it that way. <clears throat> Someone, not yeah. Someone, Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, moving on, he <laughs> he does talk about each Beatle individually. He says he doesn't have a favorite. Liar. Uh, sure, sure liar, Jan. liar. Yeah, liar, yeah. Liar. Right. <laughs> I loved, oh my God, okay. So I loved how he talked about Paul. It's so funny to me because Paul 
to casual fans or to whoever they're like oh he's the cute one he writes all the love songs he's so sweet and like fluffy and like you know just all these like saccharine you know adjectives describe Paul but Brian gets it right on the head Paul was an angry dude he was like a bottle of energy that he just like could not a bottle of creative energy which made him very temperamental he was moody difficult to deal with all of this stuff Brian says about Paul it's funny thinking more down the line and we talk about this in our episode about the weekend or the you know the months leading up to Brian's death and Paul leading Brian on, like jerking him around about the status of Brian's employment with the Beatles. And and then at one point, Paul didn't show up at a party that, that Brian was throwing that he said he would come to. And Brian was just so distressed. And the whole night he was sort of like, I wish Paul had come. I wish Paul had come. And so this far back, like three years back before that, it's so interesting to see Brian saying this about Paul in that context. Oh, yeah. I mean, Paul being calculating and shrewd, it's all right here in 23-year-old Paul or whatever it was then. And really, he got he got all four Beatles pretty much on. I mean, he yeah. whoever they were in 1963, 1964 is who they seem to be and seem to still be for the two that still remain. I mean, Ringo, I think he was especially interesting because he laid it out that he was not interested in having him in the band. <laughs> Yeah. He said, I thought his drumming rather loud and his appearance unimpressive, and I could not see why he was important to the Beatles. He, he later said, I cannot pretend that facially Ringo seemed to me to be the perfect fit. He thinks he's ugly. Yeah, he wasn't He wasn't into him. He didn't think he was great, but he concedes that he actually was a great choice. He's become a great Beatle. He was a devoted friend. He says he is warm and, and wry-witted, a good drummer, and I like him enormously. He's a very uncomplicated, very nice young man. Which, to be fair, is the role that Ringo really served in the Beatles. I think Brian nails it with Ringo, for sure. Same with George, too. I mean, he described George as the most business-minded and frugal of the group. It's no surprise, really, that he went on to write songs like Taxman and Piggies. He also said that George showed a genuine interest in the outside world, so perhaps a precursor to his spirituality, even though he was only, what, 21 at that time. And I almost wonder, and I need to maybe reread Tune In again, but like, where did George get this preoccupation with money? Because his whole life, He's just like fixated on taxes and like how he could like not cheat the system, but how he could like keep the most of his money and the whole concept of like giving the government his hard earned money. And if he was obsessed with it when he was 21, what happened in childhood that made him so crazy fixated on this? He was the only one of the four that came from a large family and maybe things were just very tight you know, his father was a bus driver, so it could be that they just he just learned the value of a dollar extremely fast. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's surprising that maybe Ringo didn't have that same mindset, because I think Ringo was probably the poorest of the four. He was also the sickest, though. I think he wasn't really concerned with practical things in the same way, because he had so much time convalescing as a kid. That's probably right. And, you know, John and Paul, they were fine. Yeah. Um, and speaking of John, of course, no surprise here that Brian devotes the most pages and words to how he feels about John. And he really kind of gushes about John. He says, had there been no Beatles and no Epstein participation, John would have emerged from the mass of the population as a man to reckon with. He may not have been a singer or a guitarist, a writer or a painter, but he would have most certainly have been a capital S something. You cannot contain a talent like this. Yeah, he didn't have any favorites. Yeah, no, no favorite, though. No favorite, though. He did detail some of the cruelty at John's hand and at John's words, but he seemed to have a deeper view of that. He seemed to see beneath the insults and have kind of an understanding of who John was under the surface, which is, it's big of him to see that, especially if he was the one on being targeted at times with the cruelty. I think maybe that goes back to what we were saying in the beginning, where, you know, he might have seen bullying ultimately as a character builder and been like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. John is hurting. And they're both very damaged people, uh, John and Brian. So I'm sure they recognize that with each other. And they did have a very close bond, whether or not you believe like they hooked up or whatever. They were very close, mm -hmm. the two of them. But no favorite. No favorite. No, 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 no. <laughs> Another interesting thing he talks about is something that generates a lot of controversy when talking about Brian and the business of the Beatles, 
was his views on merchandising, mm. which is one thing that people say that if anything that Brian did not do well, it was getting a good cut of the Beatles and all of the merchandising deals that were coming through at the height of Beatlemania. Yeah, that's the thing that we encounter most often about Brian. But he had a very profound quote in the book, and it's, quote unquote, all of us learned a solemn lesson when the Davy Crockett Vogue died overnight, leaving frenzied wholesalers gazing in despair at hundreds of thousands of unschooled coonskin hats, <laughs> which, yes, is a very short-sighted view of merch, but that's what it was. You know, we have talked about it before at length, but there was really no merchandising. There was Elvis and there were movie stars merch, but, you know, it really wasn't the same as people clamoring to make beetle wigs and guitars and dresses and all this kind of stuff that we're going to talk about at the Ridge yep. uh, next week. But that had never been done before. And if you think about it, it was really only the dawn of any sort of culture of consumption, which started right. with a post-war period. But, you know, if you think about things, you know, physical things in the idea, you know, and how much, how long will they last? Can you repurpose them? Beetle wigs and beetle bubble bath, they're not going to go anywhere if the beetles tank. Yeah, and when you're thinking about this 50s going to the 60s as a music business, what is it? It's mostly singles. And how many of those artists are one-hit wonders? A lot of them. We wouldn't have any sort of structure like the future until the Beatles, because that was when albums really started to come into play and create a lasting legacy. And of course, the Beatles were much more than that. But with the precursor, it's sort of like, why would you invest that much time and money into merchandise for maybe a singles artist who was going to have a hit called I Want to Hold Your Hand and then go away forever? Even then, I mean, as much as you could see the musical talent of the Beatles, they were still putting out things that were very much in the mainstream pop milieu. They were not going experimental yet. There was no indication, even to the Beatles themselves, that they would be around more than two or three years. Exactly. They all had plans for what to do when this thing dried up. And that was that was super, you know, successful for them. I mean, there was it, there's nothing bad about the fact that they might die out in two or three years. Nothing like the Beatles had ever been seen before. Maybe Frank Sinatra, but not even close to that level. I mean, definitely nobody was selling Frank Sinatra bubble bath. No. And if I'm wrong about that, I would be so happy because I that would be just the best. <laughs> <laughs> what does it smell it's, like? Like steak and it's cigars? Like, oh my God. It smells like Palm Springs on a real hot day. Ew. That's why they <laughs> yeah, didn't right? sell it. And it's blue because blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it comes with a martini that you can drink in a bath. All right. Well, you're going to be seeing our GoFundMe for this product <laughs> any day now. Be sure to pitch in. Frank Sinatra bubble bath. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Brian. Yes. More importantly. Another thing that might have made him short-sighted was he described throughout his commitment to only working with the highest quality people, with the most honest, most expert professionals that he could find. He described how he felt that as newcomers to the, the scene, he had to be very sharp-minded about this because he was vulnerable. And so he felt that there were a lot of sleazy people in the business. And as he said, we have created a team which is incorruptible, powerful, and which has a sense of direction and purpose. Could this be the one place where Brian's obsession with working with the highest of quality made him blind to the, the potential success in this area because the merchandise is inherently ephemeral and mostly cheap? That's quite possible. And, you know, I could see anybody giving him advice sort of like, oh, yeah, don't don't fuck with that. Like, let's just focus on the stuff that we already know how to do. Um, so obviously, besides the Beatles, Brian worked with a lot of other artists. Um, he talks about our girl, Miss Cilla Black, who we Cilla. love very much. Um, As he did talks, he. yes, exactly. He talks very lovingly. He calls her my lovely Cilla, and he talks about basically how he was sort of obsessed with her from the second time he saw her. The first time she sort of choked, but the second time he got a real sense of who she was as a performer. And this can all be seen in the dramatized ITV movie called Scylla, which you can find yes. on YouTube or on Acorn TV, which we love and would happily watch with you if you wanted to. Exactly. We watch it pretty much every time we're together, mm -hmm. um, some sort of fashion. I like part two because that's most Brian. It's all very good. We love it. <laughs> I like part one because her hair is cuter in part one. Oh my gosh. Her hair is so cute and it's so great. And that's it. 
Um, you know, it's funny because Brian talks about how he didn't want to sign another girl singer because he didn't want to dilute Scylla's quote unquote special attention. And he says something kind of misogynistic. He's like, oh, there's only so much room on the charts, charts for girl singers. Yeah. Brian. I mean, I think in the day that was kind of the way it was. It was probably another three or four years where, you know, we finally got some amazing women, more of the folk rock world. But if you weren't in Motown, there weren't a lot of girl, there weren't a lot of girl singers. I mean, you had the Ronettes, obviously you had some of the girl groups out of New York, Shangri-Las and, and that, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's true, especially coming out of England. I mean, there were some more in the theatrical realm, you know, certainly Helen Shapiro and those guys, but yeah, I guess it was pretty limited. I'm glad that he saw the special talent in Scylla and brought it out because that, yeah. that was certainly foresight on his part. Exactly. She's the best. And he says that she's one of the very great stars of the future, the most photographed girl in England, the singer everyone loves and admires, but whom no one envies because of her utter simplicity, which uh, backhanded a little bit. Backhanded, but totally astute. In the same way he describes Ringo and Ringo's charm, he describes Scylla's charm and exactly, I think, he, he encapsulates it. That is true, because she's sort of like the girl next door. She's very plain spoken. She's very, like, sure of herself. She's she's cute, you know. She doesn't mm-hmm. ooze sexuality in any way. And I think that's what made her, you know, the England's most beloved TV persona for the next 40 years after Brian's yeah. death or so. That's true. So good job, Brian. Prescient. Now, as we get toward the end of the book, unlike a lot of publicity pieces about music scene or entertainers, Brian was very candid and took a lot of time describing the strain of Beatlemania. He devoted a whole chapter to the subject at the end. He he started the chapter off in a very funny way. He said, I don't know if it was Shakespeare or Ringo Starr who said, when this business stops being fun, I'm giving it up. But whoever it was, I know what he meant. And there was a time early this year when I almost gave it up. First of all, Shakespeare, Ringo. I think that was Ringo. But uh, <laughs> that's the hunch I had. Very I mean, cute. Very cute. It is cute. That was very tongue in cheek of him. Yes. But he does detail a story where he talks about how the strain of Beatlemania was getting so great that he got an offer to sell off half of his company for 150,000 pounds, which would be about one and a half million US dollars today, to uh, still have uh, final say in decisions over the Beatles, but much less involvement. And again, it was the Beatles' loyalty to him, you know, he was very forthcoming, went to them and said, hey, I have this offer, you know, what do you think? Just to get their feedback. And they were very negative. They did not want him to do it at all. Um, And that's really what made him stay was their loyalty to him. I do wonder what had happened if he had decided to sell. Hmm. I mean, it's hard to imagine it because I don't think he would have ever done it. But I think also part of it was probably like dude nobody believed in me nobody believed in these boys for so many years and now they're successful like you know go f yourself i don't know i it probably would have been kind of like what happened towards the end of the beatles career where it was just like it became this sort of monstrous conglomeration that kind of stalled you know they probably wouldn't have had as long of a career without brian Definitely. I mean, Brian was still would have had a lot of the same say, but he probably wouldn't have had as much pull because it sounded like the Beatles were somewhat offended by his his uh, the idea of selling. So maybe they would have not listened to his advice quite as eagerly had he sold. Yeah, because that's kind of underhanded, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, sell off half of my stock in the Beatles or whatever. Like that would have negated everything he stood for up to that point. But he chose not to do it, and just like in the earlier days where he wasn't getting bite from the record companies and the Beatles persuaded him that he had to stay, he stayed. But he's still, three years in, pretty candid about the pressure and that even with the great success, he was pretty much driving himself crazy with the anxiety. You can really imagine what it must have been like for him three years later when he started feeling like actually the band didn't need him or didn't want him anymore. Yeah, especially when he's thinking earlier in the book, he's talking about how he sees a, his permanent future with the Beatles. And I don't think he could ever foresee, you know, a time when they didn't really need him. But he was confronted with that, obviously, and and um, tragically died before anything could come or not come of it. 
Um, but yeah, he is very upfront about the pressures and the stresses because this is again the first time this sort of you know operation has ever really been done, and there's really no blueprint for him to follow. So he's just working himself to the bone because that's what he thinks is necessary. Yeah, and the only experience in in pop music is that these these acts come and go immediately. So there's probably great pressure on him every day. The Beatles last longer. How are you doing it? How are you going to sustain it? What's going to happen when you get back to England? So he doesn't even have time to really plan out the future. He is just always being asked these anxiety provoking questions. And, you know, he's got people scrutinizing his, the way he's running the business. And it's just stress on all sides. But he does end on a very upbeat note. He ends the book um, hopeful. And, um, you know, he talks about wanting to get them more films, which indeed he did. We talk about that in our Yellow Submarine episode about his three-picture deal with United Artists that they had to fulfill after his death. And uh, he has a really funny quote in the final chapter uh, where he says, audience response is their only stimulant drug. Yeah. (laughs) Sure, Chan. No. (laughs) I love the lie. It's a wonderful, beautiful, innocent, pure lie. Ah, Brian, you know that's not the case. (laughs) Yeah, you like the stimulants too, Sash. Some boy's been on Prellies since like hamburger before. <laughs> right. <laughs> they love their speed. Yeah. So there, there are a few places. I feel like he's brutally honest unless it threatens the safety and security of either him or his boys. Right. Or their their overall image. Because if you would have been like, oh, yeah, the Beatles were pill poppers, that would have yeah. been like down the toilet, like the whole career. Would have been a much more popular book. That's true. Yeah, he's not salacious. Again, like if he's talking shit about people, he never names names, which is so disappointing. But it's not, yeah, it's not super salacious. He does say, you know, I believe there are only two worthwhile routes in show business, up or out. And, you know, it makes you think, like, what would he actually do if any of his artists started changing or fizzling out? You know, Tommy quickly did. Tommy quickly was kind of a disaster. But he was sort of swept under the rug kind of quickly. Brian lost interest and and quietly dropped him, but he never certainly had the profile of the Beatles or Scylla or Billy J or Jerry, you know, any of those other bigger acts. He was confronting this a few years later and that the Beatles were branching off without him. Scylla didn't make quite the splash that he thought she would in America. So he was trying to find a different way for her. And, uh, you know, a lot of his British invasion bands were more one or two hit wonders in the States, even though the Beatles went so far. I think he always saw value and his most of his artists anyway but I think also he took a lot of direction from the artists themselves you know I'm thinking about Billy Jay who for lack of a better word sort of retired after you know um I mean, he, he didn't retire he sort of slowed down his music making um and then he also became a tv presenter you know later in the 70s mm-hmm. but I think maybe that was sort of led by Billy and Brian not being like oh you have to do you know record Lennon McCartney hits or you know whatever yeah, he told a similar story about Scylla. I think that he was out in America with her and they went out with an agent or producer or something. And the guy took Brian aside and told him he thought that Scylla, you know, he should work with her to reform her image, that she seemed too common, too low class. And he said, absolutely not. She is who she is and she's going to be that. And I'm not going to let any pressures of the industry form her into anything else. Yeah, you know, he also... And this last chapter addresses his own character. Um, And this is particularly profound. Uh, He says, I don't mind people delving deep into me, searching for reasons and secrets, because there is nothing too bad there. Even if there were something to be ashamed of, if it were true and if it were known and if it were published, I could not complain. I am extremely fond of the truth and I wish I could find it as often as I find the reverse in my day by day contacts with people. That's a very loaded couple of sentences there. In light of what we know now, if if he had written that today, he would have been right. Because there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with who he was. But unfortunately, in 1964, who he was was a crime. And he had to hide it. And somehow, whether it was all-out lies or whether it was a compartmentalization that he was just really good at, he was able to kind of carve out that part of his life that was not permitted by society at the time and be able to, you know, feel that he was telling the truth in this set, in this statement. I think I, I just, I don't feel like he was, I feel like there was a part of him that believed this. 
Well, I think how he handled his homosexuality was, it was true for him because it's how it had to be handled. You know, he really had no alternative. He couldn't be openly gay. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, he was hiding that part of himself, it's just common sense. Like, yes, of course. Like, I am a true person. This is how I have to handle this. You know, so not so much lying, but just how how it had to be. And that's that's just so unfortunate. Yeah, it is. And but I think also he was for the people who were closest to him, they all knew. And really, it was nobody else's business. So I could see him also taking that stance where it's like, yeah, it's it sucks. Like this is I have to hide this part of myself, but it really has nothing to do with my professional life. And it's yeah, nobody's business but my own. It's a real shame that I think um, homosexuality was decriminalized in the UK either weeks before or weeks after he died. So he, yeah, right. he was right there. He never, he just missed being able to know what it was like to be able to, at least if not live openly, live without the pressure of being arrested on his back. Right. It's very sad. To close out this book, his final words were, pretty powerful and they were optimistic and like so many other things quite sad given what happened to him a few years later um he says however much i socialize with the great and famous i would prefer a quiet afternoon with george martin and judy george martin's wife making a bob or two at lingfield park races and best of all and far beyond anything money can buy i love to lean on my elbows at the back of the stalls and watch the curtain rise on john paul george and ringo Jerry, Billy, Tommy, Michael, or the wonderful songbird daughter of a Liverpool docker and christened Priscilla Maria Veronica White, who will stun the world as Scylla Black. Tomorrow, I think the sun will shine tomorrow. Aww, I love that. It reminds me of when Paul talks about Brian leaning in the back of the cells of his polka dot scarf being very proud of his boys. Yeah. And and there's video footage of that, and it's just so lovely. And Aww. I really do think that he was optimistic about life. And I think that mental illness and the pressures of hiding who you are and the pressures of his job, which were huge, they took a toll on him. But he did have an optimistic nature. And he had a lot of reasons at this point to be very, very positive about that. I love that. I love the conclusion. I love the book. We've been talking about our feels about this book the whole time, but it really is such a a must read for anybody who's even remotely interested in the Beatles because it's a different perspective, gives you more of a background, more of a foundation. It's just wonderful, you know, to dig inside the mind of Brian a little bit. So fun in a way to really hear, you know, what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, not not only how they developed their getaway car system, but what Brian was thinking about managing them as they rocketed to this unprecedented stardom. It's nice to hear Brian's Brian's thoughts on everything. Not only the Beatles, but, you know, his snarky thoughts about all the people in his society. It was really funny. I think it's a cool, redemptive story, too, which proves it's not like this person who I said had a wonderful upbringing, you know, in a very privileged household with great parents and a brother, how he sort of like did not know what to do with himself. And he failed a million times at a million different things. And yet he went on to become this incredible impresario who brought all this music you know the Beatles to the world is there a bigger band there's not he really achieved the ultimate professional success that's really inspiring because I mean I know for me being a bit of a perfectionist type a person it's like when I fail at something I hate it Mm -hmm. I hate to fail yeah but then it's sort of like I feel like Brian was kind of like that too and you know it's inspiring that even though he failed a million times, he, he finally landed on, on his what he's supposed to do with his life. One thing that comes out of this book is that he really needs to be celebrated for his courage. You know, not yeah. all this trying different things and he finally happened upon something and the courage to be out there and to try something that has never been tried before and have this crazy success and to keep on working at it. And it's just, it's really inspiring. Yeah, it's inspiring. What else can you say? Also, it's a primary source, as we talked about, for a lot of the well-known Beatles stories. It's unfortunate this thing's out of print. I mean, my copy is, I think, from 1998, and it has um, an intro by Martin Lewis, who, which is I skipped entirely because um, it's probably not uh, incredibly factual. I'm going to mm. be very, you know, graceful with this, but um, yeah, right. it's uh, 1998. 
Actually, it's published by Rhino Rediscovery. Yeah, I noticed it was a Rhino publication, and I also noticed that you work for Rhino, so I was wondering if there's anything <laughs> we can do about that. Oh, trust me, I took this book in like my second day, and I'm like, what's up with this? Can we republish this, and can I write the intro? And they're like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Ah. So, very sad, but uh, very cool, though, that they did that at one point. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I really do wish, though, it would have another another publishing. It's about time. You know, it's been over 20 years, so. If nothing else, it's on Kindle, and it's like five bucks. So there it's you easy, go. So, it's easy to get, and it's a pretty quick read. It's a very interesting read, and even though you know a lot of these stories, it's really, it's worth a read just because it is the primary source. It was so nice to read it again. So glad we did it for book club. Yeah. So if you've read this book and you have questions, we'd love to keep talking about it. So send us questions on any of our socials. Email us, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And let's continue the conversation. Yeah. Tweeted us, all that good stuff. Now let's move on to um, one of our... Favorite segments that we do in our episodes are our current Beatles obsession, Erica. Yes. So even though we're going to Beatles at the Bridge this weekend, there's another Beatles festival that I'm really excited about. This Saturday, September 21st in Westport, Massachusetts, there's a one-day Beatles festival called Harafest, which is dedicated only to George, which I was really excited about because I've never heard of a festival dedicated only to George before. It's about damn time. Yeah. We don't talk about George enough. I think we've got to do we a George talk episode about George real more. soon. Mm, I agree. Yeah. So one day festival um, sponsored by both the pizza joint and a cannabis dispensary. It's legal in Massachusetts. So let's just say it's guaranteed to be a fun time. I think George would approve. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> Um, also, shout out to the friend who told me about this, my friend way back from high school, Dave Loria, who's got a band, who's a George tribute band called By George, is playing at Harrowfest. They're great. I'll play them out at the end of the episode, one of their songs. He and a whole bunch of other bands are playing, so if you're up in the New England area and can get down to Westport, Mass., pretty central, um, you know, take a day and celebrate the wonderful George Harrison. Tickets at Harrowfest.com. Now, does your friend dress up like George? No, no. It's a it's a women and men. It's a cover band, not a tribute band. They recreate the songs amazingly. They do the harmonies so well, but they don't do anything to try and look or, you know, dress up like George. Okay. I mean, one of the women maybe should dress up like George. That would be interesting. Maybe they could all be different Georges of different periods of George. I told him that if I was ever in town... I'm going to sing harmony in his band. So I call George in his perm years. Yeah. Oh, my God. Perm George. <laughs> I love perm oh George. Oh, Lord. We should just do a perm George episode because that perm. 1973 perm George. So good. So good. <laughs> oh, George. I mean, he could pull off the curls, but damn, those were some tight perm curls. Oh, it was a big head of hair. Like Brian May is the only other head oh, of hair yeah. I can think of that had a curls like that. Though his thing oh, might yeah. be natural. Yeah, exactly. George, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> as much as i want to keep talking about the perm what were you obsessed with this week oh my god well my obsession this week goes along with the theme of book club which it's to do with brian big fucking surprise allison's thing mm. has to do with brian but this is like not an amazing obsession it's more like i was creeped out beyond belief so as we were working on the mini-sode about how to pronounce brian's last name I spent many, many hours going down the YouTube rabbit hole and it had been a minute since I Googled Brian's stuff. And, you know, so it pulled up a bunch of interviews I hadn't seen before, which was awesome. It was so cool to have new stuff to look at, but it also pulled up some really weird stuff. Yeah. Like <laughs> um, what? So there are two videos. There's one of, oh my God, it's a long video. I didn't watch it all because I just could not. These two videos are paranormal people who claim to either channel Brian or to like, what do you call it when you sort of uh, become Brian, like Brian's spirit comes into you and you talk I like Brian. I think that's channeling. He manifests. I think that's channeling. Oh, that's channeling. So the yeah. other thing is like, like Brian EVP like medi recording. Like medium. You're either a medium and you're connecting with the spirit or if you're a channel, I think that's when you like talk like them. 
Okay. Okay. Well, there's one of those. And then there's like one with like an EVP recorder where he's claiming to talk to Brian. And I just was so offended watching these fucking videos. The one where he channeled this guy channels Brian is like an hour long. And it is so offensive. Thank God he's not trying to do like a very posh accent. He's just talking like himself, but he's answering as Brian and all of his answers are so bogus. It's generic shit. Like he gets asked like, what's your favorite Beatles song? And I think he's like, Oh, I love all of the songs of the Beatles, like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh, like I just can't I can't oh my god I get really upset when I talk about this and the other one the EVP guy it's a shorter video but he so he has a um the box thing that they use to like measure energy and then he plays the EVP recording and he apparently has like Brian saying help or um you know he the guy asks are John and George with you on the other side and he says something like it's okay here or something and of course it's not real. I'd like, it's definitely, I mean, unless you believe in that kind of thing, but it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's indignant. And I that don't like it. Messed up. I, you sent right? me those videos and I just was not able to, to watch. I just, it freaks me out, but I know. And here's the thing. They've both been posted in the last like month. Really? Like maybe I think one is from late July and the other one was right around Brian's anniversary of his death. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening where people are all of a sudden being like all paranormally with Brian? Like, leave him the F alone. Leave Brian alone. That is messed up. Uh, I'm Yeah. So obsession in that I can't forget it. Like, I can't unsee or unhear those videos. Um, let's all report them to YouTube and make them take it down. Yeah, this is less of a recommendation and more like an oh my God. Yeah, pretty much. OMG. I can't believe this is a thing that exists. Ugh. Oh. Anyways, so that's where I am in my life. Well, on that note. On that note, bye-bye. Uh, thanks for listening to BC the Beatles. And as always, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now and give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond, but not those creepy videos. Nope. You're on your own. Nope. Uh, and remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles.com too. We'll see you at The Ridge this weekend if you're going. Yep. Well, uh, you should. Um, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Here next time. Bye. Bye. Sometimes I wish I knew you well. Tell you I feel hung up